The year, 1979. The third and last Bond movie directed by Lewis Gilbert, James Bond returns to us in a surprise upset, with audiences fully expecting, for your eyes only, as promised at the end of The Spy Love Me. But movies like Star Wars, Close Encounters of the Third Kind, the upcoming Star Trek movie, and more, made studio execs change tactics, and this is the movie we get, loosely titled after a novel by Ian Fleming. The plot follows Sir Hugo Drax in his plot to restart and rule a master human race, by first completely killing off everyone else on the planet, while James Bond rushes around three continents and space to stop him in... Moonraker. Good evening, 003. The following is for your ears only and is classified above top secret by Her Majesty's Secret Service. Our contact with the We Can Make This Work, probably, podcast network intercepted an encrypted audio message regarding podcasters assembled. For this season, the podcast network is looking to recruit field operatives from around the world to reminisce about the Bond movies and a countdown to the latest film in the franchise, No Time to Die. Your primary objective is to infiltrate podcasters assembled by recording and uploading your submissions at probablywork.com. Utilizing a two-way communications device with a built-in microphone, the latest from QBranch. For a full mission report, go to probablywork.com. We're all counting on you, 003. Podcasters, assemble. In space! Eric Slater here from Epic Fails of History and Too Young for This Trek. This is Troidal Power. This is MC. From the best animated shows ever. So far. This is Justin Aki, graphic designer and one half of Significant Otter Co. I'm Megan, and I'm the other half of Significant Otter Co. Yo, this is Corey Torgerson, photographer, film nut, and podcast hopper. Hello, my name is Ben Thompson. I'm from BadassOfTheWeek.com. This is Bill from the Tarviran Podcast. And this is Moonraker. Oh, boy. Today we're watching Moonraker, the Elon Musk story. 1979's Moonraker is the 11th Bond movie and is based on the third Bond novel. Sort of. Now, I feel like I know most people's opinion on this film, uh, but it's not mine. I bloody, bloody love this movie. Uh, it is James Bond meets Star Wars, and it's just absolutely amazing. <laughs> So going into this, obviously Moonraker, it's James Bond in space. How could it possibly be bad? Don't look too deep into this film. Just sit back, put your arms behind your head, crack out some popcorn, and enjoy one of the wildest rides that Bond's ever going to take you on. We open with the space shuttle being carried by a 747, and interestingly enough, this is the uh, this is 1979, and the space shuttle wasn't actually flown for the first time until 1981. So it looks almost retro to us looking at the space shuttle, but at the time, this was a thing that was going to start flying in a couple of years. Movie starts off with two agents who are in storage sleeping. They're sleeper agents. Two guys sneak into a British flight of an American shuttlecraft, and they just like stole it. The movie opens with the Moonraker space shuttle being stolen from the back of a plane. This movie was bonkers. I actually considered it the worst of the series. 
In typical Bond fashion, they have to dog on the Americans a little bit, and the American guy's like, oh, you flew us across the Atlantic pretty quickly. And the guys, the British guy's like, oh yeah, just trust the RAF. And then two seconds later, a couple dudes in leather jackets uh, hijack the space shuttle from on top of the 747. How they did this, I have no idea, but uh, they take it, and they ignite the engines, and they blast off from the back of the 747, destroying the 747 in the process. Pretty sure that's not how it worked. Not quite sure how these guys learned to operate the space shuttle or where they intend to land it, but this is James Bond. Makes for a pretty exciting opening sequence. I actually really like this cold open. Wow. What an opening to this film. You gotta love Jaws in this movie. I know we all estimated that Man with a Golden Gun was, but no, this one was dumb. So dumb. So my favorite bomb moment, right at the beginning, he jumps out of a plane without a parachute on. James Bond is in an airplane and he's making out with a flight attendant, but she wants to murder him and the pilot wants to murder him, so they shoot the controls of the airplane instead of shooting James Bond and they're going to parachute out. But oh no, James Bond gets in a fight with them and then there's a tussle. Meanwhile, James flies off to England from wherever the hell he is. So we get another one of those great scenes where M's asking Money Penny about Bond's status on the African job, and she says he's on his last leg. Yeah, nice one, Miss Money Penny. Bond's on his last leg. Indeed, he is. Indeed, he is. He's feeling up all the legs. And of course, we cut to him and a woman. Next, we see what Roger Moore's up to. James Bond is currently making out with a hot girl who, of course, ends up being a spy that tries to kill him. Bond gets betrayed by the first girl he's seen making out with in the movie. This is kind of a theme for James Bond. And her hench buddy comes out and uh, Bond proceeds to beat the crap out of him, shove him off the plane. Bond being Bond. Ah. All these women always trying to kill him. And he throws the guy out the window, and then Jaws is there because he was apparently on the plane, and now Bond and Jaws are both parachuting. Without parachutes. It's just... Steals parachute from someone else, and then evades being attacked by Jaws, who somehow ends up landing in a circus. He's got some really great moments, like when they're parachuting and he's trying to fly, and that doesn't work out. It definitely grabs your attention. There's a cool fight uh, on board the airplane, and then there's a really cool sequence where they're hanging out the airplane. They got some really awesome shots of these two guys kind of battling and hanging out the airplane. The fight ends up heading out into freefall, and uh, reading the behind-the-scenes stuff on this, it took them like 80 jumps to make this scene happen. Listen, the parachuting looks really good, but it's just, I, I don't know, it starts off so ridiculous because, like, why didn't the flight attendant just shoot Bond? Why didn't the pilot just shoot Bond? Why didn't Jaws just shoot Bond? But remember where you bought the flight from? They double cross him, including a pilot, a stewardess, and Jaws! The actors are wearing parachutes underneath their suits, uh, and the one they're fighting over is just a dummy chute. But um, because you actually had to like jump out of an airplane with the camera and get close enough to film this stuff, this sequence took, uh, they said, 80 jumps before they could record the entire thing. But Bond jumps out of the airplane, he catches up to the pilot in free fall, grabs him, they're fighting over the parachute, it's really exciting, and then, out of nowhere, Jaws appears. So this movie has the return of Jaws. Then, oh hey look, it's Jaws. He's back, he's back in this movie, this is the Jaws movie, he was in um, The Spy Who Loved Me, and now he's back for this, he comes flying in from above uh, to get in on the action. It might not make a whole lot of sense, but I kinda love the fact that Jaws is a reoccurring henchman. It does feel like he should have been in more movies, though. 
Like, I always kind of wanted to see Oddjob or Baron Samedi make a reappearance. I'm actually pretty excited to see him back. Jaws, yeah, everyone loves Jaws. Remember that, because he's a part of the damn movie. People have spoken. It's also where we get a space film instead of a spy film. Anybody could have killed Bond at any point in this process, and instead it leads to a parachuteless dive out of an airplane where Bond and Jaws are fighting over parachutes. We then have this really cool skydiving scene, which I think holds up pretty well. And it's cool that they actually, like, film skydivers, but this is a perfect example of why having a villain like Jaws can be a bit of a problem, because... The stunt double for Jaws looks absolutely nothing like Jaws. I think the stunt double's about five foot tall, and I'm pretty sure he's Asian, and he's definitely not Jaws. I mean, you know, there's the plane, there's the guy, there's he shoots the console, the plane's gonna crash, Bond jumps out of the plane. After this man, the only one who's got a parachute, what happened to the, what happened to the woman who's touching the leg? We never know, apparently she turns into Jaws. We had a very good outfit on there. <laughs> yeah, and Jaws jumps out after him, he has a mid-air battle with this guy rips his parachute off, kicks him away, and then suddenly Jaws comes on, starts trying to bite his leg, so he pulls his parachute, um, Jaws' parachute doesn't work, and he falls into a circus. I mean, sorry, is there anything better in life? Is there? That was amazing. And Jaws crashes into a circus tent. I sure hope the circus makes another appearance instead of just being kind of a random thing to put in this movie. (laughs) Actually, Looking back at the movie, when the military sees Drax's face, you'd think they could track a shuttlecraft taking off and landing somewhere. Honestly, they find a giant space base four seconds after it becomes visible to radar. You don't think they could just, you know, see a craft landing somewhere? From what I understand, NASA always wanted to try and figure out a way for a space shuttle to take off from the top of a plane. But I guess it never really worked out or is too risky or just way too expensive. With that being said, this movie sucks. The song in Moonraker is really bland to me. They got Shirley Bassey back again. Shirley Bassey's great. We get the intro sequence. It's another Shirley Bassey song. It's not Goldfinger, but it's fine, perfectly serviceable. So once again, these opening titles just feel so generic. But the song is just, I mean, the only part of it I can remember is like the Moonraker. And I think it's bad because like, what the hell does Moonraker mean? Albert Broccoli can, uh, complained once that the uh, the intro sequence for Moonraker cost more than the entire budget for Dr. No. I don't know how true that is, but that's something that he was using when he was complaining about uh, the guy who put it together for him. I love James Bond. I love spy flicks. I don't mind some parts of the movie, but seriously, this is the worst of the series. And I know that like a lot of people on the podcast here did not like the last movie. I thought it was awesome. And this one, I think, is a real struggle. One area in which I do believe that Moonraker is an improvement over The Spy Who Loved Me is the theme song. That's right. Don't at me. I know you podcasters all loved it. I don't like the Carly Simon song. I'm into the Shirley Bassey one. What? And the lyrics make even less sense than usual. The song is terrible. The credits are terrible. They really tried to work in the title into the lyrics in this one, and I just don't think it works. They're trying to hold on to an old Bond thing here, and it's not working. Very like, hey, do you remember when we did Goldfinger? I think she says, just like a Moonraker. I don't know what a Moonraker is. Just like the Moonraker goes? But like, what the fuck is a Moonraker? I don't know. 
Anyway, Money Penny is old as hell in this movie. So the movie starts off with Bond meeting with M and Q, and we learn about the Drax Corporation. All right. So here's the plot. A shuttle disappeared, and also the guy who made the shuttle is a xenophobic asshole who wants to wipe out humanity and basically run the eugenics wars from Star Trek in space. And he stole the shuttle to replace one of his shuttles that went missing. Hey, look at this. We're setting up a lot of plot for Mr. Drax. He's really rich. So then we get the obligatory exposition sequence where James Bond finds out that the wreckage of that 747 from the intro has been discovered, but the wreckage of the space shuttle is nowhere to be found. So somebody has stolen a space shuttle, and now James Bond has to go to California to talk to Elon Musk to try to recover it. And Bond has to go to California to find that out, and then to Venice, and then to Rio de Janeiro. That's all I got for the plot of this one, man. I don't know. This movie bored me to tears. I I, I hate to say it. I try to be positive on this show. Um, But man, a couple of these movies have just not done it for me. It opens up with James getting some new toys. And Bond gets this really sweet gadget. Uh, my favorite gadget is the wrist dart gun. It's a cyanide wrist dart. Including an armed dart gun that I completely forgot existed until like the third act. Ah, yeah, let's get the poison darts in for Christmas. I reckon it'll be a bestseller for the kids. They'll love it. You know, I've, I've already started making the adverts for it. Good suggestion, Bob. <laughs> this is probably going to be one of the best comedy films in Bond history. It's just amazing. And with this little wrist gun, Bond is now officially a web slinger. <laughs> That thing seems super impractical. I mean, you could set that thing off just going to shake someone's hand. Jesus, Q is sadistic. He uses it twice, I think, in this whole film. Uh, Once he accidentally shoots a painting in M's office, and the second time he uses it to um, stop the centrifuge um, from killing him. This is exactly why I'm not a super spy, because I would shoot myself in the foot with that thing. Anyways, we got Bond once again at the LAX airport in California. Then, Bond flies to the U.S. without Felix Leiter to greet him. I love the Moonraker factory. It's so cool. Just the little scale model. It's great. There's moving parts. It's great. To visit the stolen version of Versailles. So Drax's French mansion is supposed to be in Southern California? The, the whole, like, gallivanting around the world bit. I mean, he goes, like, to the bad guy's mansion in California. This is peak Bond timeline here. Something in the Matrix broke. So we head to the perfect reproduction of a, a Parisian mansion where uh, Mr. Drax lives. Nobody would ever be able to buy, like, Versailles and import it to the U.S. That looks so out of place. Rich people. Hey, hey, Mr. Drax. You must be a rich bastard. Oh, I bet he's pure evil. <laughs> it's like the 70s Elon Musk. Although, you know, <laughs> I don't think Elon Musk is evil. Is Elon Musk even the right person to think of? But yes, you know, it's like if uh, Elon Musk was a man who only worked with good-looking people. You know, we don't want any mutters in space now, do we? No, 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 no. But apparently it doesn't matter because Bond gets a helicopter pilot to fly him. It's very hot, like two movies in a row. Bond meets the vain villain Drax, who looks and acts like a villain. Mr. Drax has an incredible voice and is just a very menacing, he's a very good villain. Um, This movie is lacking in many capacities, but uh, Mr. Drax is not one of them. He looks like 
a bigger Peter Dinklage in a French palace serving Japanese tea. Rich people. His office is fun, though, and he has like a complete Elon Musk vibe going on. But it's like super shady. We meet his strange Japanese henchman who uh, is really weird and um, Mr. Drax tries to force James Bond to eat cucumber sandwiches and drink tea. Bond uh, wisely declines. This guy in the karate uniform reminds me of one of Goldfinger's henchmen, and not in a good way. A woman doctor, says Bond. Hey, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. And there's an undercover CIA agent named Dr. Holly Goodhead. Dr. Goodhead. Dr. Goodhead? Really? So then he has to go off to meet um, uh, the chief scientist for Mr. Drax, Dr. Holly Goodhead, which... Uh... Bond meets Dr. Holly Goodhead, which, honestly, that's her name? Because her name's Goodhead. Do you get it? Like head. Good head. Right. Yeah, I'm not going to know that word. <laughs> but she's an astronaut. That's progressive. And at this point, I just kind of want to mention that Moonraker is very similar to the previous Bond movie, um, The Spy Who Loved Me, except everything about it is, like, shittier and weirder. It starts with the shuttle being uh, captured, which the other one started with a submarine being captured. Space shuttle is much weirder and dumber. That's the one they went with for this. We meet Dr. Goodhead, who has a much sillier and dumber name than Anya Amasova. She also, we will discover, is a secret CIA agent, but she's not as good of an agent as Anya was. And um, the actress is not as talented as Barbara Bach was. Uh, And we're just going to see a lot of things that will keep coming up where it's just a crappy version of the last movie. And then Bond gets a tour of the facilities. So uh, Dr. Goodhead, you know is taking Bond on a little tour of this uh, space factory that this man has in his uh, imported 17th century French chateau. And Bond's being a right prick. (laughs) Roger Moore mansplains constantly. (sighs) Uh, I'd be really, really annoyed if he was on my tour route. Okay, so Bond is like a representative of the British government. You don't have to give him a dumb tour. Tell him what you think happened. Then the government will like, you know, go away. Don't try and kill Bond on a centrifuge machine. So they put Bond into the centrifuge thing that they used to train the astronauts, and it looks kind of fun until they try to spin him to death and scramble his brains. I do really like this scene with the centrifugal generator. And he keeps trying to assassinate him. He tries to assassinate him with this weird centrifuge thing, which is a cool scene, admittedly. Made me freaked out about centrifuges when I was a kid. He's able to get out of it by using the the wristwatch uh, dart that he got from Q to blow up the controls and stop himself from dying. Man, it's a good thing that Q just so happened to give Bond a gadget that would only come in handy in this one instance. Weird how that keeps happening. Seriously, Bond uses his wrist gun to stop the gravity ride, but still, sloppy Drax. It's an interesting death trap, but it's not a very exciting one. It's just a lot of watching Bond spin around in circles, which is not particularly heroic or exciting to watch after the first 75 to 80 seconds of it. If Bond is actually on a mission to review Elon's grounds, why is he riding the first roller coaster? So, he's being spun around in his G-Force machine, but 
What the hell do all these gauges and pressure things mean? None of them are labelled. Like, who's supposed to be able to read this crap? <laughs> Who knows if it's overpowering, if it's overheating? Is it going too fast? Is it going too slow? Is there too much pressure in the uh, pressure department? <laughs> is it too high, too low? Is it, you know, I used to, yeah, none of them are labelled. Like, this is the probably one of the worst machines ever made. No one's going to know what anything does. Terrible. Terrible, terrible, terrible. Once again, we're reminded why these films are each over two hours long. The G4 scene is a hair over five minutes, and that really dulled the tension for me. And then I love that when uh, Holly gets him out of the machine, she's like, oh, I don't know, something must have gone wrong with the controls. And meanwhile, James Bond is like barfing and like so dizzy he can barely stand up and he just pulled like 16 G's and nearly had like his brain splattered around the inside of the machine. Dr. Goodhead enters after the machine has already stopped and then she starts apologizing saying something must have gone wrong with the controls even though she was not in the room at the time now i think she was in on it because bond has been a straight dick to her this whole time anyway bond sleeps with the hot pilot so then bond hooks up with kareen the assistant she helps him steal info Basically, within 10 seconds, she just allows him to access the uh, secret safe that has all the access for the Moonraker plans. And this time, he has an even smaller safe cracker unit that we've seen in any other movie before. So Bond cracks Drake's safe and takes some pics with a camera. He takes photos of it with his 007 camera that has the numbers 007 written on it, and one of the O's is the uh, camera lens. Not just any camera, but a 007 branded camera. Uh, he takes these pictures of it. She's like, no, oh, no, don't do that. And then he does it, and then she lets him go. Drax will later be upset by this and have her eaten by dogs, but, like, she probably should have done a better job of preventing Bond from accessing the safe in the first place. But that seals her doom, because the next day, Bond is like, yo, I'm out. And Drax is like, let's go pheasant hunting. Then we are treated to like a seven and a half minute montage of people murdering birds. It's, you know, in California. I didn't know if they actually hunted pheasants. But anyway. But then, like, so he knows that Bond is investigating him and he's openly trying to kill him. And Bond shows him that he knows this by killing one of his assassins in front of him. And then they keep being like, ah, good show, old sport. We'll keep sparring. Oh, yes, we'll be so witty and sparring as we do this instead of just, like, me pulling a gun and shooting you right here. I just, I don't... Drax has to kill Bond because we saw him sneaking around before, and then boom! Favorite kill? There wasn't much to it, but it happened when they were at Hugo Drax's palatial mansion, and Bond is asked to shoot Pheasant, and when he shoots, you assume that he totally missed his target, which we thought was the bird, but then you come to find out he perfectly shot the assassin that was hidden in the trees. Bond kills the shooter that's sitting in the tree. Mr. Drax eventually offers Bond the opportunity to murder some birds as well. But instead of shooting the birds, he shoots a sniper that was hiding in the trees waiting for him. But Bond leaves and the helicopter pilot dies trying to run from dogs that we never see again. Oh, poor nameless Bond girl. Oh my god, he set the dogs on her? Probably my favorite villain moment is when... Drax fires uh, a woman. The assistant who gave up the plans, uh, she shows up, Mr. Drax fires her, and essentially releases dogs to chase her down and kill her in the forest. And then uh, Ramsey Bolton's her in the forest by having her chased and eaten by dogs. I mean, yeah, she betrayed him, but 
the dogs, you know? Now, one thing about this is that she drives up to Mr. Drax in a golf cart, gets fired, and then runs into the forest. For the sake of a dramatic exit, I understand why Corinne would not take the cart to escape and instead run. So, in theory, she has the keys to this golf cart and knows how to operate it. And presumably, if it's not faster than the dogs, it certainly can go distances longer than them. It would you definitely have a better fighting chance against two Rottweilers if you are if you're in a golf cart than if you are running through the forest in heels. And also, there's no resolution to these dogs. You know, normally Bond kills these things later on in the film, but he doesn't. These, these dogs are just here, where they get set up earlier on in the film, and then they get set on the, uh, the woman that Bond slept with and helped him break in and get some information that he wasn't entitled to. But the whole scene, albeit fairly long, is very dramatic. I realize at this point that a lot of the background music is super cool, uh, and at the point in time in which it's implied she's murdered by the dogs, they do the transition and bells ringing in the next scene. So kudos to that. Uh, it's very villainous. Man, they really stay on that scene for like a good long minute. Yeah, it's just harrowing, right? They go after her, they chase her down through the woods. You keep expecting Bond to come to her rescue, and then you're kind of mad when he doesn't. If it makes you feel any better, those dogs have been dead for decades. He just leaves her to get eaten by dogs. And then, literally the scene after she dies, Bond's in Venice flirting with a blonde chick. You know, it just goes to show that women, 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 you should never succumb to Bond's penis. It'll only involve you being set upon by dogs and eaten to death. Anyway, Bond figures out that Drax is building some random glass facility stuff in Italy. So Bond heads to Venice, which is uh, where there's a glass company. He found a clue in uh, Mr. Drax's safe that had plans to Moonraker, and these plans point to Venice. So Bond goes there. So rather than paying to have machine precision glass made to hold these special canisters, which, um, you know, seems to hold this... uh, point later on uh, but he rather than having a precision made by machine or he pays extra to have them hand blown by some guys in venice i mean drax is paying extra for something that won't be as perfect as something that was made by a machine just what a villain he investigates the glass blowing factory because venice is known for glass blowing uh and then he runs into holly i'm not gonna call her dr goodhead anymore like Please don't make me say that again. He goes there, goes on a tour of the plant, running into Goodhead, because surprise, she's a spy. Oh my god, Bond is so condescending to uh, Dr. Goodhead. Oh god, how? You know, I'd have to be condescending to Dr. Goodhead, I think. <laughs> now, my wife's a doctor. If I spoke to her like that, uh, well, she wouldn't be my wife for very much longer. Yeah, I'd be a, a very lonely man. Very, very lonely man. Anyway, Holly is there for a conference, but Bond already has figured out that she's CIA, uh, so he starts following her. I'm noticing that Bond goes to Venice a lot. You gotta love how this gondola operator knows exactly where to be to pick Bond up. And then, for some reason that is not quite explained, he decides he's going to go for a ride by himself in a gondola. Bond has one of the worst chase scenes in a Bond movie, the gondola ride. What is even happening in this movie? 
Oh, this boat chase through, through Venice is epic. Coming down the canal the other direction is another gondola that has a coffin in it. And as that coffin passes James Bond, the coffin lid opens. It's completely lined with weapons. And there's a dude in there that tries to throw knives at James Bond. The dude in the coffin with the knives. You know, there's a guy comes out of a coffin throwing knives. Bond grabs on the knives, throws it back, kills him. And he falls back into the casket and he falls into the river. Now... What was the plan here? So there's a guy and he puts himself in a coffin and he presumably has some way of looking out so that he can see when he's going to pass James Bond coming the other direction. I don't, the logistics of just that seem very complicated to me. And then when the lid pops up and the dude pops up, he's got a knife in each hand. He throws one to kill the gondola operator first and it's a perfect shot and the second one i think he might throw two at bond that both kind of deflect off the side of the gondola so like i mean maybe bring a gun or like you know there has to be a better way to do this there has to be some way where you can like be a little bit more guaranteed to get the kill or otherwise just do what the other guys are doing and drive up behind him with a machine gun that didn't work either but at least like it makes sense favorite vehicle I'm going to choose the gondola that turns into a speedboat that turns into a hovercraft. Bond doesn't get a car in this movie. He gets a motorized gondola. Oh, that's just terrible. Anyway, now we have a chase sequence in the uh, in the canals of Venice. James Bond's gondola, he referred to it, uh, Roger Moore referred to it as the Bondola, which I like. It's got a like a motorized outboard engine on it and it is just flying down the canals except that the rules of Venice uh, you aren't allowed to take a boat faster than five knots which is about five miles an hour so they had to film this entire sequence in pretty much slow motion and then speed it up in post uh, but rem- remember when I said that Moonraker is just like shitty spy who loved me this is a good example of that right you had the the Lotus Esprit that could turn into a submarine and in this one, you have a gondola that turns into a speedboat and then turns into a hovercraft, and none of them go more than five knots. It's it's that, right? That perfectly encapsulates the difference between Moonraker and um, The Spy Who Loved Me. And somehow makes it through those tiny little streets of Venice. The gondola gets shot up in a drive-by casket, but also the bon- gondola is motorized and also a hovercraft? Wait. This gondola has a motor? The boat is just like, you know, suddenly he's on the gondola. In the next minute, the gondola seems to have some sort of motorboat engine. You know, I don't remember Q bringing him his boat. Did I miss that bit? And then, like I said, somehow there's a motor engine on this gondola, which has all the Bond's gadgets in it. He's driving all the way around Venice. Calling it right now. Favorite gadget of this entire movie, the hover gondola. And then suddenly he gets to San Mark Square, flicks a switch, boom, hovercraft. Hilarious. And he starts just causing havoc around St. Smart Square. It's just amazing. So, so fun. Did they just do a pigeon double take sequence? They definitely did do a pigeon double take. But it's just so good. Another fun behind the scenes note of this is that uh, when uh, the gondola inflates and Bond drives up onto the shore, they had to do five takes of that because the first four takes, the gondola didn't inflate properly and it uh, it dumped Roger Moore into the water. And then they had to have like a makeup team come reapply makeup. He had to change into a fresh suit and uh, get dried off before they could attempt the sequence again. Uh, and it, on the fifth take, he didn't get dumped into the canal. Funny story. The wine drinker in the square is the same wine drinker in the beach scene of A Spy Who Loved Me. 
But anyway, we get a rehash of some of the same gags we saw when he drove the Lotus out of the ocean in the last one. Uh, a bunch of people pouring beers on each other or check, looking at their drinks to make sure that they're not completely hallucinating uh, a dude driving out of the water. During this boat chase scene, there's a nice funny little bit where a smoker peers over one of the bridges into the water and sees the previously ejected coffin floating there. And he's continuing to cough through the whole scene and just chucks his cigarette. And that's a pretty funny anti-smoking ad right there. Uh, like I said, same as uh, Spy Who Loved Me, but worse. Roger Moore loves a good disguise, so he breaks into the facility, uh, the glassblowing facility at night, um, wearing a gondola operator's hat that he immediately discards and none of it comes up again. Did you catch that code to the laboratory? That was 1977's Close Encounters of the Third Kind. Turns out the museum is also a lab with the worst OSHA program ever. When Bond is able to enter the lab and inspect the vials, I definitely got this dino DNA vibe. While inside, he accidentally murders two guys with poison gas. Bond kills two sciences by just like leaving stuff around and not putting it away. And then watches them die and then runs away. Okay, so let me get this straight. Drax flew a henchman out to Venice just so that he could swing his wooden practice sword at Bond? Of course they send a dude with a shinai into a glass shop. Couldn't carry a gun or use karate. Had to be a sword just to merit the use of Chekhov's glass guard sword. But back to the action. Bond gets attacked by a guy with a judo stick, not even a real sword, in the glass factory. Um, really? You couldn't have attacked him with like something sharp? Favorite Bond moment? The completely unnecessary fight in the glass factory in Venice. Oh, and he's having the fight. Bond's having the fight with the henchman, the, the Asian henchman. Then there is a fight with the Japanese guy who attacks him with a kendo sword, which, of course, everybody watching is thinking, why isn't he using an actual samurai sword? Because this thing is supposed to be training for using samurai swords. But... Um, Their fight starts outside, but they go through a door. And of all places, it's the Murano Glass Factory in Venice, Italy. And it's the gift shop, and they just start destroying basically everything. Oh, that poor museum. And they must have caused, like, millions of dollars in damage in this iconic factory. Some of that glass is fancy, going up to $1 million. That's only... $3,531,597.87 in today's money, but that's not terrible. It's a museum. Anyway, they, they throw each other through a lot of glass. They're just throwing each other through glass for like, I don't know, a solid like six to seven minutes. They destroy the entire Venice glass blowing industry while in the process of trying and failing to kill each other. I love that moment with the vase where Bond like goes to throw it, but then realizes how expensive it is and oh watch out for that super expensive glass bulb that a tour guide set up earlier on in the movie by saying it was worth in today's value over a million dollars um oh, oh too late you hit it with a piece of armor <sighs> and it gets smashed anyways bond saves the priceless glass piece which is then immediately destroyed but man oof that hurt oh god drax is gonna need to call the insurance company now and put in the claim Oh, I hope he has uh, broken while my Asian henchman was trying to kill a secret agent cover. Because uh, he's gonna need it. <laughs> what a pointless sell. 
Also, it seems kind of dumb that only one thing in this entire shop has a very weak alarm on it. It's my favorite because it's just so completely over the top. Wait a sec, what happened to Bond's wrist darts? Those would really come in handy right about now. He eventually kills the guy by throwing him through a clock tower into an orchestra onto a piano. But anyway, Bond overcomes and throws the villain's henchman out of the window. Uh, and he dies, and that's the end of that guy. Play it again, Sam. Bond then goes to Dr. Goodhead's... Ugh. Oh, FYI, Dr. Goodhead, still her name, Ugh. she's a spy for the CIA. She is the Q-branch equivalent of all the gadgets. Not just one, but like 40 of them. Oh, here we go. Bond and uh, Dr. Goodhead are now having a Bond sexy time. But she also has a Bollinger 69 because she was expecting Bond. The Bollinger moment. <laughs> oh, yes. Oh, more. Oh, more, more, more. You're a man close to my heart, you are. We love a bottle of Bollinger. Ah, me and Bond have so much in common. I just love a drop of Bollinger. Good man. Good man. That Bollinger 69 is currently going for about $1,124. But yeah, I mean, she's still like hardcore double O equivalent. Goes to Dr. Goodhead's uh, hotel room, sees that she has some cool gadgets, is like, oh, I see that you have a bunch of gadgets. You must be CIA. And then she's like, yes, I am. Now let's have sex. Just a cream in free meetings. And for Bonds to constantly belittle her every single time. You're you're a big old turd, Bond. Great big old turd. And that's just what happens there. I love that Drax hires Jaws. This movie is way ahead of its time. We may have Grubhub and Uber, but Drax just ordered a new replacement sidekick. Like, uh, hey, yeah, mine broke. I'd like to order another, thank you. Prime shipping, same day delivery. And Jaws is officially back. Jaws, he survived. Yes, he survived. He's fallen into the, into the, yes, he survived. That's all you have to know. He survived. Nothing ever kills him. Did they make the airport ceiling shorter for this scene? Bond enters a warehouse and uh, it's empty. Oh, cat, cat. Tyler, Tyler, did you see the cat? There was a cat. There was, there was a cat. Tyler, did you see it? Did you see it? Good. No? You missed it? You know, Tyler, pay attention. So there was a box in Venice when he's fighting that said Rio. So clearly James Bond has to go to Rio. He goes on a Concord, which is kind of cool. You don't see those anymore. Bond makes his way to Rio after finding out the villain has a complete lab removed overnight. By the way, I didn't know they had the Concord in Rio back in the 1970s. Totally was the thing. Hey, look, Concord. Oh, we miss you, Concord. I couldn't find a cost from Paris to Rio, the closest Concord flight. But let's just assume that the other standard transatlantic flight, it would cost about $12,000 back then, which is $42,379 today. That's insane. Anyway, Bond lands in a fantastic white suit. He goes to the most 70s hotel room I think that has ever been made and uh, hooks up with his Brazilian contact because of course he does. And then they decide that they're going to go investigate the factory uh, in the middle of Carnival, because why not? This is the way the world works in this universe. Meets a British agent working in Rio and then casually sexually assaults her because he's James Bond. So uh, my wife is Brazilian. I've been to Brazil a bunch of times and it is just all the time. Half naked chicks just jumping around. Man, Rio, 
Rio looks like a fun place, you know? Dancing. It's exactly like it is in this movie. Very accurate representation of downtown Rio de Janeiro. Just like 24 hours of music and dancing. She takes him to Carnival, which means this movie is supposed to take place in around, I don't know, February? Lord knows, Bond has invented other random holidays before. They make their way to Carnival, where a giant creepy clown starts stalking them, and BAM! It's Jaws. So we then get this weird scene at a Rio parade with this creepy clown from It? Also, when he dresses up as basically an escaped killer clown from outer space in the streets of Rio during Carnival. At first, I thought that thing was a float. Turns out it's Jaws in a clown suit. Can I say that there are very few things that are more terrifying than Jaws walking towards you in a giant, creepy clown paper mache costume? That shit is terrifying. Jaws tries to murder the agent. Bond interrupts. This interaction between Jaws and Manuela is pretty dumb because she doesn't kick or scream or anything. She just kind of stands there and lets him murder her. I know it's just that like Richard Keel has this mouth full of fake teeth, so he has to, and he wants to show them so that you can see the menace of his like iron teeth and how he's gonna like bite through everything. But when all of like the bikini girls and party dudes in Rio come and grab him and start like partying down the street with him, it just looks like he's smiling and having a good time. But Josh is too polite to fight through the crowd as a seven foot foot two tall man. Ah, oh, John. Jaws is just the worst henchman buyer. I mean, it's just a crowd of people, and they push him away, and he lets it happen. It's just, yeah, yeah, rubbish. Probably one of my favorite lines from the whole movie is, Do you know him? Not socially. His name's Jaws. He kills people. After that, James goes to investigate the airport, wearing a full suit in Rio, which is just crazy. That thing's like a thousand percent humidity. But he makes his way to the top of the mountain, ends up running into the CIA agent. Crazy times. Oh, there's a lot of product placement in this movie. <laughs> there's a lot of 7-Up product placement in this movie. Man, does would anyone else fancy a cold, carbonated, lemonade-based beverage? Anyone? Anyone? No? Alright, I'll have Coke. But then Jaws jumps in and decides to attack them on the tram, because that's what Jaws does. Oh, the cable car. The cable car. Then we get the great cable car fight, which is pretty good like the stunt work on this is pretty amazing when you're looking at it from the outside like they really had guys out on top of these cable cars fighting and you know it's not quite up to the standards of what we expect in an action sequence today but the fact that they're like really out there doing this is really impressive um some very impressive stunt work here i'll admit i don't know the mechanics behind cable cars but would a cable car remain perfectly still with a cut cable? First of all, Jaws apparently only works with like other bald henchmen. And once again, leave it to Bond to be the movie with a cable car chase scene. This is great. <laughs> Whatever. This is tense, suspense. Jaws is showing what a good henchman he is, like how strong he is and everything. It's just, yeah, this is really, really good. Second, Jaws seriously has some crazy strength because he crushes a three-inch cable under tension. I don't I don't think his jaws work that way. I mean, I mentioned this in the last movie, but just because your teeth can cut stuff doesn't mean your jaw can actually stand the crushing strength. It would rip his jaw right off his skull. 
As cheesy as it is, I think the action in some of these scenes, like that moment on the cable car uh, in Rio with Jaws, I think a lot of these scenes really work. Fun cinema. This is fun cinema, right? This is. I've never been on one of these before, so I asked my wife about it, and she was like, "Yeah, it's pretty much like this, except that there would be so many people, it would be impossible to even move around on one of those cable cars." So uh, this is this is the James Bond version of this vacation. Cut to Jaws making the weirdest vertical jump ever across two trams. Jaws uh, rides up on another cable car, jumps across to Bond's cable car, and they fight. Bond defeating Jaws and then jumping on a zip line by getting captured and thrown into an ambulance. Bond escapes. Jaws crashes the cable car in a way that I don't think is actually possible or that it's designed to explode. Uh, and then meets a girl who they immediately fall in love with each other um, inexplicably. And the music is very weird. And then we get to see Jaws fall in love. When he finds the love of his life. The music and sound choices for this movie are bizarre. Oh, Jaws is trapped underneath a giant cog thing and then helped by like a four foot tall, five inch tiny hot chick. And then at the end of it, who do we meet? <sighs> yes, we meet a busty blonde girl with pigtails who somehow manages to also um, <laughs> be part of the uh, the bad guy's plans <laughs> and team. <laughs> yeah, pretty weird. But it's uh, the love interest for Jaws. Oh, I just love it. Love it. Which, for some reason, we always remember as having braces or needing braces. Solid Mandela effect. She totally should have had braces. Such a missed opportunity. Oh, Jaws found true love in a character trait. Uh, while I was watching it, I was trying to figure out why I didn't like it as much as I wanted to like it, and as much as I remembered liking it the first time I saw it. And the sound choices and the music choices are completely incomprehensible, right? There's a scene later where he's wrestling a snake, and the music doesn't go with it at all. The Jaws fight doesn't have, like, this weird, like, love song playing out of nowhere. The musical choices here are bizarre and disconcerting. Like, like so bizarre that I don't notice this kind of stuff, and I I was thrown off by the whole thing. Man, that is a weird moment. Especially since, like, Jaws isn't done being a villain yet. <laughs> anyway, James Bond uh, survives the battle on the cable car, falls on top of Dr. Goodhead, and they um, start making out. And then a couple dudes in white suits carrying clubs show up. They're like, hey, what's going on? Bond's like, we're good. Let me just like, I'm busy here. And then as soon as he goes back to make out with her, he gets clubbed in the back of the head and uh, handcuffed in the back of an ambulance. Because what about this scenario did not set off your spidey sense here? How did Bond not think paramedics randomly appearing on a mountaintop weren't suspicious? They're trapped in the back of an ambulance. Dr. Goodhead uses her secret CIA powers of looking longingly into the eyes of the orderly while James Bond escapes and kills the guy, presumably. And then he gets away, but does not bother to rescue the CIA agent who helped him escape. Bond escapes from the ambulance that they're driving in for like 30 seconds after waking up. But Goodhead is stuck there. She can't, she can't break out. That's how that works. I totally understand why I love this movie as a kid now. For literally no reason, we see Bond riding a horse as a gacho. As Bond rides on horseback, I can't help but think to myself, it's Roger Moore as Clint Eastwood as Bond. He then, we get bizarre cowboy music, 
and he is dressed up as a gaucho, which is not the same region as Rio de Janeiro. He is um, he is more in the south. He's in like Santa Catarina, maybe. And the town he's in does not fit the area. We've got like a like a Cairo, Luxor, Abu Simbel problem, like the one we had in The Spy Who Loved Me. But again, probably worse. Bond then reenacts the good, bad, and the ugly in the middle of a Q Branch church, where Moneypenny and M apparently have an office in the middle of Rio, because of course they do. So not only does Q have a hideout at the archaeological site in the middle of an Egyptian pyramid, he also has digs in the middle of a monastery. I love how Moneypenny's just at her desk like it's no big deal. Hey, look at that, Kung Fu monks! I do love the random Brazilian jiu-jitsu monk. Like, it's such an amazing little two-second sequence where Bond opens the door dressed in a ridiculous cowboy hat. There's two monks in there. One flips the other one and then gives him the sign of the cross. And then it cuts back to Bond. He's still wearing the cowboy hat. And he's like, yep, seems good to me. And just closes the door on them. This film truly has it all. I almost like want a movie about that judo monk or at the very least I want Bond to fight him, or I want this to have anything to do with anything. They test out a laser gun, foreshadowing. The monk with the bad laser gun just makes me think of uh, space balls. We get this completely random and unnecessary boat chase. Just in case the first boat chase didn't take up enough time, now we're on boat chase number two. It's been another few hours, so now it's time for a boat chase. This time in the Amazon. We get a really great chase sequence through, they say it's the Amazon, this isn't the Amazon. This is Iguazu Falls, which is in like the southwest corner of the country on the Argentinian border. But uh, it's still a really amazing looking place. The chase is cool. Uh, Jaws is great in it. Where Bond's boat has Super Mario-styled water mines, and heat-tracking torpedoes. That's very handy. The music is just... WTF? It's disco, but crazier than I've heard before. The boat's about to go over a waterfall, but, I mean, being chased by Jaws, he has to escape, so what? It has an integral hang glider. The hang glider! Okay, okay, I know I said the hover gondola was my favorite prop in the movie, but this hang glider in the boat is, like, real badass. And then you get um, James Bond hang glidering over the falls while Jaws goes over the edge. And Jaws is just is just as unkillable as ever. And for the third time in the movie, we find out that Jaws is literally indestructible. How is Jaws still alive? He somehow survived an exploding underwater base, He's fallen out of a plane, and he fell off of a waterfall the size of Niagara Falls. Like it was no big deal. Oh, I love it when Bond paraglides out of the boat. <laughs> but, uh, you know, uh, again, it's another moment in the film where it's seemingly impossible to kill Jaws as he falls off of a gigantic waterfall cliff while in a boat that will clearly explode at the bottom, and yet he doesn't die. What is this man made out of? No, well, I know it's implying he's made out of metal, but, you know, seriously, come on. You should be dead. This dude's like the Terminator. No wonder all the villains keep wanting to hire him. He's like a force of nature. Okay, and then after going through not the Amazon and going over the falls in the southern part of Brazil, we arrive at Tikal, which is a Mayan ruin in modern-day Mexico. And so 
that Amazon doesn't have ruins like this. There's no ancient civilizations that live there like this. Um, this is a very like Mexican, Central American, Yucatan Peninsula type of ruin, um, but it doesn't matter. It's all South America. Let's go. Drax is a dick, but that is one cool Aztec temple base. Bond makes his way to heaven, or at least heaven for Bond, because it's a girl of every flavor. You gotta love that Bond is calm as a cucumber, while literally all of Drax's girls just appear from absolutely nowhere. Oh, Drax's army of beautiful women, okay? Now, I don't care what the job is, I want in on your evil plans, Drax, you know? <laughs> you, you, you have got the perfect, perfect operation, and I am the man that you need to come and work for you, you know? Oh, Bond, always thinking with your dick. I let out a very audible laugh at the catapult rock. Where's Admiral Akbar when you need him? It's a trap. But they cosplay 1997's Anaconda. Naturally, because Bond fought a shark in the last movie, we have to do that, but shittier. So this time he fights a boa constrictor, which is a very not awesome looking prop. And the music is just completely bizarre while this is happening. One thing I do love about this sequence, however, is how the, uh, the, the layer is like full of all these hot girls and Bond is looking at him and he's like, yeah, I'm James Bond. And then this platform just catapults him into the water where he gets attacked by a snake. Then he has to fight the snake. He kills it. But then as he's like getting out, he's just like, uh, yeah, sorry, girls. I, I don't know. This doesn't usually happen to me. So Drax captures Bond, and like I said, there are no Mayan ruins in Brazil. There are also no monstrous underground layers consisting of like six to eight space shuttles that can blast off into outer space. But this is James Bond. Let's just go with it. And Jaws throws him into a rocket ship launch location with Goodhead. He's down there. He's captured by Drax. Uh, Drax also has Holly, and he is going to kill them by... Uh, placing them underneath one of the, uh, the shuttle thrusters as it is about to blast off into space. Seriously, though, that conference room wouldn't have survived 30 seconds at a launch. Why would you build a conference room there? Which is pretty cool in theory, except that Bond and Holly just run away from it and they're fine. Anyway, what the space balls are those guards wearing? Once again with the matching uniforms. Doesn't matter. Bond seals your outfit because it's terrible looking. Love it. I like that everybody on Moonraker base, including Bond, is wearing the jumpsuit, except for Jaws. I, I envision this going down with him just being like, Jaws, you gotta wear a jumpsuit, and he just kind of shakes his head. This is by far one of the most impressive evil layer setups I've ever seen. His plan's pretty good too, you know? People with good-looking people alive in space. Well, you wipe out people on Earth to protect the planet. Yeah, I'm, I'm still in. I, I want, it doesn't matter. I want, if it's Janice's job, I want it tracks. Please, is it available? Please send me the positions that are available. I'm sending my, I'm just typing up my CV now. They managed to steal a Moonraker space shuttle and in, cons in continuing with the very consistent theme across all Bond movies that he can drive or pilot anything, he sits down in the driver's seat of a space shuttle and is like, yeah, I got this. I normally don't speak much to the lack of realism in these Bond movies, but that launch was so laughable. That whole complex would have been covered in flames and smoke. Now also, the amount of rocket fuel this guy would have needed to smuggle into the middle of the Amazon rainforest to fill up these six space shuttles to get them into space. And I've never heard of people like launching rockets consecutively. You know, normally there's like a very small window you can launch a rocket 
and you have to have the perfect conditions for it. So how he's managed to get these six rockets into space, and then also the Americans later on who just randomly go, yeah, all right, we'll check it out, we'll launch a rocket. It's like, no, that's, that's not how this works. This is not science, people. This is fiction. So with the help of some of the other podcasters in this assembly, uh, we come up with some notes. In 2001, NASA purchased liquid hydrogen at 98 cents per gallon and liquid oxygen at 67 cents per gallon. At liftoff, the orbiter and external fuel tanks carried about 835,958 gallons of propellants, including the hydrogen, oxygen, hydrazine, uh, some other $3 words I can't pronounce, but uh, it cost approximately $1.3 million. When the American Space Shuttle program was active, the average total cost of a launch was about $450 per STS mission. The Space Shuttle program originally estimated it cost about $7.45 billion just to develop and get off the ground, $43 billion adjusted for inflation, and the program's entire cost from 1972 to 2011 was about $196 billion. So, if you calculate the average cost of NASA launch and the amount of money it took them to get developed the six orbital vehicles, Drax is looking at spending at least $10.2 billion in 1979's money. That's not even counting the cost of the space station itself, which would have been beyond astronomical. The ISS would have cost over $150 billion to build alone, and this thing had a three-story atrium. Today, it costs roughly $10,000 to put a pound of payload into Earth orbit. How many pounds were some of those people on that ship just to go canoodle? Considering the size of Drax's operation, we're talking possibly trillions of dollars for one person. Drax has more money, power, and resources than all the nations of the world combined. That's insane. So I kind of forgot how long it actually takes to get to the space stuff. You always think about this one being as the one with Bond in space. Bond in space! But it's really like the last 20 minutes of the movie. We also find out that the space shuttle is full of hot people. And it, it turns out that Drax's plan is to just put all the hot people on a space station and then destroy the Earth. Uh, okay. <laughs> I love Jaws's face here. Jaws looks so confused. Jaws is all of us. So okay, this movie's been a little bit planned. But listen, now we're gonna go to space. James Bond is stealing a space shuttle that's on its way to a space station being run by Eugenesis, and he's going to space. This is gonna be dope, right? No. Somehow they made James Bond international man of mystery flying a goddamn spaceship into the most boring thing that's happened in any of the James Bond movies. After getting launched in Spaceball, I mean Moonraker 6, they hang out in space for a while with their fuel tank, even though the thing usually gets discarded like first thing, and then it just drops. Terrible, 
terrible, terrible. Okay, so as cheesy as all of the space stuff is, they also kind of make an effort to get some of the science stuff right. Dr. Holly Goodhead then fills out the rest of the astronaut checklist, even though she doesn't work for Drax. Like, you don't actually have to do the work, lady. So it's a pretty great looking space station for the 70s. They roll up on the most incredible space station ever. This station is huge. Oh yeah, an evil space station layer in space. So James Bond is in space where he discovers a secret orbital space station that was presumably built at the cost of billions of dollars over multiple years without anybody noticing this many rocket launches at a time when rocket launches were probably pretty noticeable considering that the U.S. and the Soviet Union were on the verge of nuking each other at any moment. But let's suspend all this disbelief. Let's go. Space station out orbiting Earth. We're going to go up there and fight all these people. Let's do it. If you compare it to the real life International Space Station, which is the size of two football fields, I mean, that thing's tiny compared to how big this thing has to be. Probably my favorite vehicle is the massive space station itself. It's very cool. The only thing that would have made this a little bit better would be if JW showed up on the space station. That would have been the perfect tie-in for a couple of movies there. This movie ruins space travel the way that Thunderball ruins scuba diving. This movie is just terrible. It's just bland. Okay, hear me out. Drax has to steal a Moonraker back from the government to help him against people up in space. Oh no, oh no, wait, that's not, sorry, that's not an evil space station. Sorry, that's just Deep Space Nine. <laughs> oh god. I wonder if Odo is secretly Jaws. Hmm, I can see Bond rubbing some Ferengi's ears before this movie's finished. Mark my words, people. Mark my words. How in the living hell did he get this thing up there? Fine, I'll give you, he has radar jamming, but even then, this thing has a three-story atrium and a gravity well. WTF. Wait, the space station's empty? Who? I mean, who built it? <laughs> How can it be empty? You can't just launch something that big into space and have it empty, not be working. It must have taken thousands of people, like years and years of man hours to get that thing operational. You don't just have it sitting there in space turned off and someone gets on and turns on the gravity and then, oh yeah, here's my evil space station filled with my special gas canisters. It's just, no, no, that's not how this works. Also, the first astronaut in space has a giant gravity control button because they can afford the people acting like they were in floating in space for more than 30 seconds. I love the zero gravity scenes. What is with everyone moving exceptionally slow in space? Like, it's real hard for them to move. Everyone's moving really slow, and one dude's, like, literally doing a handstand. But for real, whoever built this thing would have to still be up there in space. They can't just go back and forth. Oh, and it turns out Jaws' girlfriend works for Drax now. Unsure if it was a normal girl who helped Jaws and he got her a job, or if it was a girl who worked for Drax who happened to be at the cable car. Once again, my favorite henchman in this whole series is Jaws, and he has a redemption in this film. And uh, the best part is when he brings his love to the space station. I really enjoyed that he flipped sides and became friends with James Bond eventually and helped him escape. It just, it shows the evolution of the character. 
I think the only really good part about Moonraker is Jaws. Jaws gets some good play in this one. He shows up several times to confront Bond. There's that bit at the beginning that sucks, but there's a part in Rio de Janeiro where he like bites a cable car to death. He just bites everything to death. Uh, that's pretty cool, but he also like Jaws gets a girlfriend. And somehow during the big action scene at the end, James Bond becomes friend with Jaws? I don't, I missed how that happened. During his bad guy speech, Drax has kind of like a Tyrion Lannister vibe about him. Drax's speech sounds really familiar. Didn't we hear this all in the last movie? Also, the bad guy's goal is so dumb. He has like, what, 200 people in space? He's gonna kill everyone except them and repopulate the Earth? Oh god, Drax has gone uh, full Nazi Aryan race on us, isn't he? You know? <clears throat> he's, uh, he's not the tallest of guys, is he? He's definitely got the old uh, short man uh, with a god syndrome thing going on about him. Yeah, yeah. This, this isn't going to work out well for you, Drax. I mean, except for all the armies, militaries, people who are wearing masks, people underground, all those people will survive. But, you know, only the hot people Drax have and no real engineers or anyone useful will be alive. This whole transporting select humans into space so that you can kill all the humans on Earth thing seems like the most expensive and traceable means of accomplishing this task. So this movie is basically a remake of The Spy Who Loved Me? Going back to this just being like a worse version of Spy Who Loved Me, it's pretty much the same plot. I'm going to wipe everybody out and I'm going to build a new civilization You know, Stromberg wanted to do it under the water. Drax wants to do it in space. So many similarities here. We just saw this movie. Obviously, Drax is a terrible villain. He's the worst. There's nothing about him that is redeemable. I mean, I guess he's a person who gives to charity and lends out spacecraft, but he's like a terrible Elon Musk. I also love that during the speech, uh, Drax is like, we are making a race of perfect people, and you have been selected as those perfect people. And then it cuts to Jaws, and he's just like, huh? Me? Bond convinces Jaws that he's not part of the master race Drax is going for. Those brief seconds where Jaws realizes what's going to happen to him are pretty powerful. I genuinely felt bad for the guy, and this is the first actual bit of real character we've seen, other than the silly unstoppable tool. But regardless, uh, Holly... Goodhead and Bond disable the jammer. The ending sequence, uh, the Bond disables the cloaking device and uh, reveals the space shuttle to the Americans and the Russians. The Americans scramble a space shuttle to go and deal with it. Um, it's like two Marines on a, on a space shuttle. I don't know what they're going to do against 500 Moonraker guys, but okay. They go up. We get a surprise face turn from Jaws, who doesn't want to, uh, isn't super down with the Master Race thing. And uh, then Bond disconnects the, the, uh, the power to the station. Everybody falls down. Gravity disappears. We get a great line from Drax where he's like, Space Shuttle is approaching. Prepare to laser it. Which might be the best line in the whole movie. Then the United States set up a freaking shuttlecraft full of Space Rangers. Space Force! Man, this movie called it like 50 years early. Then, just when you're like, this can't be any weirder, the back hatch of the space shuttle opens, and there's actually like two dozen Marines in there with jump packs and lasers. 
And then just like Thunderball, they're like, what if we have a big war in space? And then the Moonraker station deploys its guys with lasers, and there is a space laser fight in jetpacks in outer space in a spy movie from the 70s. And so there's like a whole shuttle full of space commandos who fight against Drax's space commandos? And that's weird. Now, as silly as it is to have all the Marines in spacesuits just flying up in space shuttles, the Air Force actually had its own space shuttle that was kept secret for years that we only found out until a couple years ago. And also, this is definitive proof that America, get this guys, come on, conspiracy time, conspiracy. America, they had a space force in the 70s. Bond is proving this right here in this movie. They had a space force. Don't believe the lies that they're just trying to set one up now. You guys have already got a space force and you're already up there firing lasers on evil bad guys with big Deep Space Nine uh, space stations. This is the truth, I'm telling you. So you never know. So 15 minutes after the military launches from California, the army arrives for a scuba diving sequence in space. And Bond hits a giant gravity stop button. In zero gravity, everything slows to a crawl. That's science. But that only lasts for like two minutes. Okay, acting over, stop moving slow type button. Now it's time for a space fight. Slow laser battle in space. Yes, yes, yes. And at least it's moving along much quicker than Thunderball's underwater scene. And look, I know this is dumb and cheesy, but like, I kind of am into this battle sequence. (laughs) And this, this laser fight just gets more and more bonkers as it goes on. And I just bloody love it. It's just like... People are just dying left, right, and center. I kind of dig it. They've got the lasers mounted like chest center, which is probably difficult for aiming, but it makes sense for stability purposes. There's a lot of like fun deaths. People are like catapulting into the sun. You know, if you can just kind of adjust your mind from this is Mission Impossible to like this is Starship Troopers for a minute, there's a lot to like about this scene. There are beams of light flying across the screens. The actors are trying to pretend like there's no gravity and sometimes they're pretending there is gravity and it's just bonkers and I just bloody love it. This whole sequence really takes me back to playing laser tag with my friends. Number one platoon, EVA. Number one platoon, EVA. I just love the blue lasers. Like, it doesn't look realistic, but it does look cool. Can I ask what was up with, like, the uh, Space Rangers laser gun things? They're mounted on the chest height level. Like, you can't even aim them like a gun. You have to turn your whole body to get to people. Just bonkers, and I just bloody love it. I love everything about this scene. That's just weird. And there's a big battle on the spaceship, and you're like, yeah, this is definitely the first Bond movie that came out since Star Wars got popular, and you've got the Jaws carryover from the last movie. It's fun to watch Jaws beat guys up. Also, the Moonraker laser from Goldeneye, from the Goldeneye video game, was the absolute coolest weapon. I want one.
So at the very end in this corridor scene, when Jaws is on their side, I'm reminded of the very end of Rogue One, but with Jaws instead of Vader. Jaws has brass balls that clank when you knee him in the junk. I think I would enjoy seeing that kind of remake of this movie. Drax tries to escape. There is a third time James Bond uses the dart gun, and that's to kill the big bad guy Drax right at the end of the film. But Bond shoots him with his wrist gun thing, and now he has a broken heart. Then James Bond corners Drax, uh, shoots him in the heart with a dart, and as he is dying painfully from a cyanide capsule, he ejects him into space via the airlock. Bond throws Drax at the airlock and is like, he had to fly. And that's probably my favorite kill. This movie came out the same year as the original Alien. I don't know who blasted a person into space first through the airlock, but it's great. And it's always great, and it will always be great in movies. That wrist gun thing is so dumb. Why would you let Bond have it when you captured him? They didn't check his wrist for like a weird tube with darts in it? Good. It's good to see that the thing, everything's blowing up around them, but the first thing they do is put on their seatbelts. You know? Good head, Bond. That's good work, people. I approve. But then, like, James Bond is trying to escape, and he's not going to get away because, oh man, everything's broken, and who's that? It's Jaws, and so he has to call Jaws, who's stuck on the space station that's exploding, and he's like, hey buddy, can you help a brother out? And Jaws goes and bites some stuff, and it makes the shuttle take off. Oh man, I was genuinely kind of tearing up just a wee little bit when Jaws and his girl just kind of accepted their fate and enjoyed the moment with a toast of, well, here's to us. Ah, uh, we get the conclusion of the Jaws love story. And it's good. They sit and have a bottle of champagne together. It looks like Don Perignon. Not quite a bottle of volley, but you know, still, still very tasty. Okay. Good for you, Jaws. Good for you. You deserve love uh, from your uh, huge killing sprees last couple of Bond films. Then Jaws helps Bond escape. And honestly, Bond should have died in this movie. Jaws is the real hero. And his girlfriend doesn't have braces, even though we all remember with braces. It's weird. It is important to note that uh, Jaws survived. They do mention it, that there was two survivors from... <laughs> There's a saying in writing where, uh, you know, screenwriting and, and novel writing, where you, they, you, you're not supposed to get too attached to your characters because it makes it harder to, like, beat them up and give them a hard time. And you got to think that, like, whoever came up with Jaws, he ended up being such like a weird fan favorite that they were just like well there's the only way to finish this movie is with him dying and they're like no no we need jaws redemption arc we can't allow this guy to die i love him too much okay picture this there's a space station in space and it's crashing it's exploding it's self-destructing and crashing to earth and jaws and his girlfriend survived hell yeah can't wait to see Jaws again. Jaws helps James Bond disengage the locking mechanism in the space shuttle and then is catapulted off into space, spinning into the darkness, very Darth Vader, and Bond is like, yeah, he's totally gonna live because that's just what Jaws does. He's unkillable. My favorite moment is actually Jaws's speaking role where he says, here's to us. But apparently they escape, so I mean, it's nice. Bond and Goodhead break away in Moonraker 5 and chase down the nerve gas things. But anyway, Moonraker Station is destroyed. The United States Space Force escapes successfully, uh, return back home. James Bond steals Moonraker 5, 
goes to blow up all of the globes that are orbiting the Earth. And in the process of doing so, he does not evacuate the master race from the station, which means that he has effectively killed all the hot men in the world. So this helps him not having to face competition in future Bond episodes. And we get a total space camp sequence chasing them down. So taking out this last globe where it's going to kill everybody on Earth, um, <laughs> James finally shows a bit of like grit, you know, and it shows that he's totally got a bit of sacrifice to his character. Yeah, He's always in danger and he's always saving people, but it kind of just always feels like he's enjoying it. Whereas this moment actually feels like a bit of tense, like tenseness, and like he won't be able to do it. Like, you know, I know as a hero that he's definitely going to do it, but there's a, real, there's a real grit in this scene, and it's, uh, it's different. They shoot down all of the satellites. We have a very, like, stay on target Death Star trench run kind of situation at the end. Um, the doc pulls it out, and, uh, and all of the globes are shot down. It's definitely different from most of the other bits of any more movie. And Bond ends up on a ship with a girl. And then naturally, at the end, Bond is in a spaceship with a girl. It counts as a boat. It's a space boat. It's just not a boat. And of course, naturally, we end with James Bond having zero G-sex with Dr. Holly Goodhead. So the best line in the whole movie comes from Q. I think he's attempting re-entry, sir. He's attempting re-entry, sir. <laughs> Says Q. Uh, now, I remember watching this when I was a kid, and this was probably the first dirty joke I ever heard. And it was probably... One of the first moments I can ever remember, like, you know, Bond always has like these kissing moments and then it goes black. You know? And as a kid, you don't really clock on to that. And I think this was the first time it was him and the woman pushing together and he says he's attempting re-entry. And I think this was the first time I might have actually barely laughed at a dirty joke as a kid. <laughs> it's just, yeah, it's just hilarious. I think this is the first dirty joke I ever heard. And of course, the movie ends with a re-entry joke. With a disco Bond theme song. Oh, the out music is great. It's like a techno space remix <laughs> of the theme tune. It's so good. So that's it. That's Moonraker. That's Moonraker. Oh, this film is just great, you know? It was, um, it gets real weird real fast. Uh, it's, you know, the, the ending is very bizarre and weird, but I think that honestly it saves the movie, pulls it out from being just really gnarly and difficult and boring to just being so bonkers that you're like, I have no idea what's going to happen next, but I, I'm sure it's going to be weird. Any of you guys who shit on this film, shame on me. I don't know. It was just, it bored me. It bored me to tears. Shame. I had some fun bits, but mostly I was just disappointed. This film is great. It is comedy at its best. And I, Michael Caine, and I approve of Moonraker by Bond. Yeah, I thought it was it was fine. Like, you know, it, it took a while to get going. Everything at the beginning is just the worst version of The Spy Who Loved Me. And then the last 15 minutes are like a worse version of Star Wars. But um, just so bonkers and kooky that it has like a, a weird appeal to it. This is by far the second best Bond film going. Yeah, we've got Living Daylights, Moonraker, and then Skyfall and third. All right. Fight me. Hashtag fight me. Come on. How do you make Bond going to space not good? I just don't understand that. It's James Bond and space. How does that combination not equal, like, the best movie in the franchise? I'm on Twitter at Metunica. M-E-T-U-N-N-I-C-A. This is the second best Bond film going. Fight me, people. Fight me. Uh, thanks again, as always, and we will uh, see you on the next one. James Bond will return in for your eyes only. Finally. 
Podcasters Assemble Season 003 is a production of the We Can Make This Work Probably Podcast Network. Find more of our shows at probablywork.com and learn how to contribute to future episodes of Podcasters Assemble by looking us up on Twitter at Casters Assemble or joining our Discord server, link in the show notes. Submissions are always open. Thank you to everyone who was able to contribute to this episode. Be sure to check the show notes for links where you can find them all online. Thank you. This has been a presentation of the We Can Make This Work Probably Network. Follow us on Twitter at ProbablyWork for more of our questionable content. Also, we have a website called ProbablyWork.com. And uh, they get him on a camera, straight to Buckingham Palace, live feed of him naked with the girl, and Q says that he's attempting re-entry because sex. Uh, sorry. Well, that's my chance. And then at, at the end, Jaws lands in a circus tent. And that's how he doesn't die. In this one. I, you know... Uh, during this entire sequence, in Rio... What are those things called? Jaws fight scene. Cable car, that's it. Wait a sec. What happened to Bond's wrist darts? Stop it, bird. Shut up. It's just it's boring and slow. There's a Moonraker. Ooh. Podcasters Assemble will return in For Your Eyes Only. If you're a fan of this podcast and want to see it continue, help support us on Patreon, where you can unlock tons of exclusive content, including, but not limited to, movie commentaries ad-free versions of our promo specials extended cuts early access to new episodes behind the scenes clips first access to merchandise blooper reels and even a chance to vote on what we cover next on our podcasters disassembled episodes just head right on over to patreon.com slash podcasters assemble that's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash podcasters assemble link in the show notes